when they were testing, they would test these large groups of athletes, and they, they had essentially a 10-hour testing day to do, you know, a variety of, of you know, lactate tests and VO2 tests. But they had this, the day planned out in five-minute increments. So imagine a 10-hour day planned out to the to the five-minute increment as people were doing like a kilometer on a treadmill and then five kilometers outdoors and, and back in and, and these multiple laps and just unbelievable um, organization and, and uh, skill in, in the research and, and the logistics are just like kind of mind-boggling. Hello and welcome to the One More Mile podcast. It is Tuesday, June 25th. 2019, and we are here to actually do our little wrap-up of the American College of Sports Medicine's 2019 annual meeting. Now, if you follow me on Twitter, I was actually tweeting during the meeting. I had some photos up there, had uh, some back-and-forth discussion with some folks about what was being presented, and I had originally planned to get some audio clips from some of the presenters and folks there and that that did not work out and then I said well you know let's do a series of tipcasts but seeing as how I attended uh, the meeting with uh, today's guest I decided to bring on Jeff Rothschild to discuss what he saw I saw we saw uh, together at the meeting and some of the things that he actually went to that I didn't get to so please welcome to the podcast Jeff Rothschild how you doing Jeff I am good, thanks. I'm happy to be here. It's good to have you on. Uh, I know we've had you on a few times, but I, when I was going through my Skype, it said that I hadn't talked to you in a year, huh. and it, it, it seems like it wasn't that long ago. But um, I did actually just see you, though, and, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. Um, uh, we just both got back, and by just, uh, I, I mean a few weeks ago, from the American College of Sports Medicine's annual meeting in uh, sunny, blazingly hot Orlando, Florida. Uh, and we ended up going to a lot of the same sessions. And so what I wanted to do is is recap kind of the, the highlights of what uh, you saw, what I saw, in, you know, cer- certainly what we saw and, and kind of talk about where uh, this year's meeting went and, and, uh, and what we learned. Uh, so from that aspect, uh, what what do you think for you uh, was the you know kind of the highlight or, or if there was one session um, that you went to that you said yeah you know what I'm glad I got to that one. Yeah, for me, I mean, just big picture. I think going to those kind of conferences, it's a great chance to you know hang out and chat with people like yourself who I, we've certainly communicated a lot, but never in person or some people, uh, researchers whose work you've followed or and may or may not have been in touch with. It's just an amazing opportunity to just get to, you know, kind of chat and ask questions and things like that. So that's kind of the, the biggest thing I, I tend to get from conferences. But, uh, as far as the specific sessions, I think listening to George Brooks give two talks, uh, was excellent. And so for those that aren't aware, he's, and, and you know, but way better than me, even he, he's like the, the lactate guy. He's dedicated his career to studying lactate and, and, and what it's doing. And, and, you know, at the beginning of his career, it was thought of a, as a waste product and something that essentially inhibits performance and is, is not, uh, you know, something we don't want around to something that is really a, a fuel source. And, and one of the most interesting things I learned, uh, was that it, we, we burn, 
I think, what is it, two times as much lactate as even glucose during exercise. Uh, I thought that was pretty fascinating. So, so he see, seeing him give a couple of talks, I thought was were, was really enjoyable. Yeah, uh, and that's one of the things that I think that that is still not well understood by just the general public, or if we're talking about athletes. Again, I, I'm sure you, like I, still still run into people who talk about lactic acid and you know the burning and and, and all of those old tropes uh but but George Brooks's research has really spanned decades on really trying to not only debunk that part but but really get at the heart of uh, you know what what a threshold is uh, I, I I recall back in graduate school where we covered two papers and, and it was this point counterpoint. Um, and I forget the, the, the other, uh, you know, the other debater, um, and these are just two different papers that were published, but Brooks wrote one about, uh, you know, anaerobic threshold and why it's really not, not a correct term to use. And then somebody else, you know, you know, talked about why it is. Uh, but I remember talking about those papers and discussing that and, and going through that. And it was written in 1985, and so when I when I was in graduate school, we were already, you know, probably two thousand eight, two thousand nine, talking about these papers that were published thirty years ago. And I think that when we look at what we understand of lactate now, how important it is, how how important a signal it is to actual training adaptations uh, that we don't think of. You know, it's always been known as a waste product, and, it, and I think it's it's hard to get away from that. But the way that that I like to convey to students is that lactate's absolutely essential. I mean, it allows us to do a lot of things. On um, you know, it, it is still a bit of a credit card. You know, so, mm-hmm. so if we want to go really hard, really high intensity, uh, we we can still produce a lot of ATP. Uh, but we're going to produce more lactate. But 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 yeah, you're definitely right. I mean, the amount of lactate that we really produce um, is, is is I think mind-boggling. It's just that when we're talking about lactate buildup, uh, it's really about a removal and, and 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 trying to get it out of the muscle, try to get it to re- to the rest of the body where it can be utilized. is pretty fascinating. Yeah, and I think the other I think the reason it, it's uh, so, uh, such I guess an elusive concept. I mean, it's we we eat carb, fat, and protein. You know, it's, lactate isn't something we eat. I mean, I know you can take it as a supplement, but because of that, I think all the focus, understandably, is on uh, energy production has been from carb, fat, and protein, whereas lactate is is you know generated internally, uh, but it still serves as a, a major energy source for, as far as what we're actually burning uh, to make energy. The other thing I, I found extremely interesting and again this is probably not certainly not new knowledge but uh that the, the the legs the muscles are likely net consumers of lactate during exercise so we we we'd probably would one would think say during cycling and you're, and you're cycling really hard and, and even if you um appreciate that lactate is used as a fuel source we know that there is still a buildup of it and that we can't uh the disappearance is is lower than the rate of appearance but um the the legs let's say during cycling are, are likely a net consumer so it's not that the additional lactate is is probably coming from the legs it's coming from other places in our body yeah yeah and that's a great point it's it's uh it's really one of those things where where 
when we're talking about needing energy during during activity, I kind of wanted to to uh, you know to make that point because lactate is a huge benefit to us post activity. All right, so when we're trying to actually replenish glucose and glycogen, you, you know we're we're converting that back over, um, but it's actually being funneled into the muscle and being able to be used. And and I think that that I, I think it's it's widely accepted. I think the evidence, uh, you know, kind of the the step A, step B, step C lactate into the mitochondria. I think has been a little bit more elusive. I know Brooks has had. Um, a good bit of data, and, and it's always been difficult. It's difficult to actually see that lactate being pumped in, but I think that most of the general community the consensus is is that it it's definitely occurring, and from an athletic standpoint, it's definitely going to be an important feature, uh, particularly to endurance exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Um, so what, what else, uh, in, you know, did you like about the meeting? I know that we both had gone to the ketogenic talk and, and there was one thing I think that you knew about, uh, you know, as far as like ketogenic diets and, and, and whatnot that, that I, I wasn't really in the know. Um, and, and, and so for me going there, not keeping up on that literature quite, a, quite as much as you do, uh, clearly, uh, what do you think it was kind of the big, big uh, maybe take home points, top two or three from that session? For me, yeah, for the, the ketones, and there was a couple of sessions that, that talked on, uh, that touched on this. I think the most important distinction that I see in practice that, that gets overlooked is the difference between being in ketosis, like on a ketogenic diet, a low carb, high fat, you know, classic. Or, or even you know some version of that ketogenic diet, as opposed to taking exogenous ketones. So those are the supplemental ketones that we can you know consume and, and use for energy. And those are uh, let's say drastically different um, situations inside your body. So whether when you're taking exogenous ketones, you're able to you know you're also burning potentially carbohydrate. Whereas when you're in ketosis, you're still using some carbohydrate, but but it's it's a lot different because the ketones are being generated naturally. Um, as a byproduct of fat metabolism. So, you know, from a practical standpoint, what, what, like what that actually means, the research is, is really still in its early stages as these exogenous ketones are relatively new. But I think it is an important distinction because people hear about a keto diet. Um, you know, it's one of the most common things in my day-to-day -day practice that people, you know, come in, either ask about or curious about. Um, and then they kind of uh, confuse or, or, or kind of overlap the, the taking exogenous ketones. So I, I just think that's an important distinction that even though we don't know everything about it or even close to it, um, it's, it's important to realize those are different physiological states. So, uh, you know, you know, I think along those lines, uh, how, how beneficial at this point, if you were going to write, uh, you know, you know, come to somebody and say, well, you know, I, I think you should try this supplement or that supplement. Um, how important or how highly would you rate exogenous ketone supplementation? Uh, I would put it fairly low, um, but probably like, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would at this point tell someone to try it if they had some and was curious. Like, I know it's expensive. I know there's different, there's a lot of nuance even within the supplements that that was also something that was covered, you know, whether there's the, the, um, the esters or, you know, there's, and that's been known for a little bit that there's, they have different effects. 
So, uh, I mean, I'm not very excited about him right now, um, but uh, I'm kind of a, a, a Luddite, I suppose, when it comes to most things. Yeah. I think for me, the, the uh, you know, the one thing or the first thing that really jumped out um, was the whole idea of the loss of, of, of running economy or running efficiency or efficiency in general with the ketogenic diet. And I always uh, approach this based on the fact that, well, you know, it's fat. You need more oxygen to burn fat. But it turns out that 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 high fat diet, um, you know, low carb diet is actually messing up your your mouth, um, uh, your mouth bacteria. And so it's making it uh, more difficult to actually absorb nitrates, which again, if anybody's listening, um, beetroot juice, nitrates uh, haven't shown to improve economy um, or, or efficiency if you want to think about it that way and that these ketogenic diets are actually kind of messing that up so so in a sense you're almost doubly uh, hurting your efficiency yeah yeah absolutely now interestingly it's the fat that's inefficient and, and ketones I, I think don't quote me and this wasn't really mentioned that I saw at the meeting but I think ketones are, are more efficient from an oxygen standpoint so um, it's possible that when someone's on a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet, they're relying predominantly on fat. But, you know, in theory, if someone were to be on a, a higher-carb diet and could get the exogenous ketones to work, I mean, I don't see why you couldn't uh, really improve economy potentially, though I don't think that's really been shown. So it might just be more theoretical. Yeah, I, you know, at this point, it's uh, – it, it kind of frustrates me with ketogenic diets because, um, and this came out on Twitter, you know, it was like right around the conference, there were lots of different like, like tweets going out about different things, but, but the ketogenic diet came up and then people were citing stuff from the conference and citing stuff from some of the research that was, that, uh, uh, presented there. But it's frustrating because we're still getting into this, debate about, well, you know, it, it's still going to be more efficient or you're going to be a better fat burner. And you always have to come back to this point. Well, it's like, okay, you're, you're a better fat burner, but is that translating in, in, into performance? I think from the research that I saw, and this is akin to what I've read, is that there, there's no performance advantage to the ketogenic diet. They're just, right. there, there might be responders, and there's always going to be a responder and a non-responder depending on, um, you know, you know, what you're doing training wise, supplement wise. But it seems like most people are non-responders to the ketogenic diet. And so if you really want to get more efficient, it's kind of like the anti-physiology, like you, you hear these arguments about no, no, no. It's it's more efficient, and you have to constantly remind. Them, well, no, it's less efficient, yeah. and you're not going faster. The best I've seen from any study is that it's break even. Right. Yeah, I agree. And and, and so it, it it you know from that aspect, it seems like the ketogenic diet. I I don't know how many more studies we need to do to be able to show that that. It's probably not worthwhile for most people. Again, individual yeah. results may vary, but the ketogenic drink seemed very interesting. Um, you know, some of the data that I found interesting was the combination of carbohydrates and ketogenic, or or and uh, the uh, 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 the ketogenic drinks. 
um, the ketones. And so, again, that data seemed pretty inconclusive, um, you know, as far as like say, saying like you should or you should not use carbohydrate. But it seemed like the trend at least was that maybe adding carbohydrate to those drinks might might improve their their yeah. performance capacity. Yeah. And you know, on, on a similar note, this was from a different session that I don't know that you were at. Um, you know, we think about, I, th I think fat oxidation is still important. I think sometimes it gets made too much of perhaps, but um, taking in carbohydrate, like in a sports drink, you know, we kind of traditionally might think that that would blunt our, our fat oxidation, but there was a, uh, a, a I think it might've been from a poster or something else where it was during low glycogen aerobic exercise. So when you're doing endurance exercise and your glycogen has already been depleted, the exogenous carbohydrate didn't blunt fat oxidation. Which I think is, is yeah, um, and it, it might have implications for when you're starting with a depleted uh, glycogen tank. So maybe if you're a triathlete doing two two workouts in a day, um, and you're already fairly depleted going to the second one, it's possible you know that that you don't have to like withhold carbohydrates from that to get some of these uh, effects uh, on, on fat oxidation, whereas, you know, you might be okay to have a sports drink and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that, that, uh, you know, that's come through in some of our conversations when, when I talked about the sleep low approach and, and, um, and, and my, my trying to do no carbohydrates after a very hard training session. And it seemed to disrupt my sleep to such an extent that I, I couldn't effectively train the next day. And I found that just adding a little bit of carbohydrate um, certainly improves my sleep quality. Uh, you know, whether I've totally obliterated any sleep low, I, I, I don't know, but I find it hard to believe. No I think it's yeah. more about a fueling signal. And so, you know, if I eat a huge bowl of pasta, you know, my, my, my body, my brain, whatever is going to say, oh, yeah, man, you're fully loaded for the next day if i eat a couple pieces of bread i don't i don't know if that's yeah. really going to mess things up no way because you know it, it, there's other studies that again some of it might have been touched on at acsm like to, to replete to fully replete like after a soccer match on a friday night to fully replete the next day i mean you have to have a crazy amount of carbohydrates to actually really replete your glycogen so that's right having yeah. a couple slices of bread i mean that's probably just going to put you into more of an optimal window um so yeah, yeah, I think it's okay. You know the the other thing, not 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 directly related to um, the ketogenic diet, but the other thing that I found really fascinating um, is the whole idea of using mouthwash uh, and really hurting your 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 ability to absorb nitrates uh, so much. So and, and I saw enough data on it that I was like, uh, I'm gonna stop using mouthwash. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? I Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry you've been using it this long. You know, that's critical You know, from, from a health never, standpoint. Yeah, I never knew that. <laughs> so I have all this – I've got all this Listerine i got to figure out what <laughs> to do with. Um, but I think I'm going to turn it into a post-race wash. You know, so so it's got a little disinfectant in there. It smells minty fresh. <laughs> um, so, so it'll be handy at, at races, but, uh, but yeah, I was, I was like, wow. And, and so what really got me thinking about it is just, they, um, and, and this was in a number of sessions, they did a really nice job at kind of bringing everything home to like health related issues. And the, the chronic mouthwash users had a, a higher, uh, a preponderance of high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And 
the, you know, getting rid of mouthwash from the diet seemed to reduce blood pressure, which is, you know, you know, in a sense, like mind blowing because you're, you're like, oh, you know, you've got this person, they struggle with high blood pressure. Um, they use a lot of mouthwash, maybe cut that out. And it's, it's really interesting what we're finding about the things that we think are actually good for us or, yeah. or maybe helping us uh, are really, really hurting us. Yep, exactly. Um, the other thing uh, in, the, in this meeting really centered around the whole uh, idea of um, sleep and, and, and circadian rhythms. There were a number of sessions on sleep, and I, I know we had kind of talked about different things from different sessions, but I found it really interesting. It got me thinking um, is doing a lot of training sessions in the morning where you're sleep deprived or, you know, late night training sessions and looking at the health related data, whether again, it be uh, high blood pressure, um, diabetes, obesity. And I really started thinking about all of these, you know, runners and particularly triathletes that you see that take up the sport to lose weight or maybe get healthier. And a lot of the the you know the habits that they build in the training process are probably uh, at, at best kind of breaking even on all the health benefits that they get from the the mm -hmm. uh, you know the training. I agree completely. Yep. One of the slides that got thrown around, uh, or not thrown around, but used by a number of people is looking at diabetes risk associated with sleep and circadian disruption. So we think of um, you know uh, being overweight is definitely like that's the, the highest diet risk for diabetes and a family history of diabetes is also one of the fairly high risk um and physical activity or excuse me physical inactivity but high, higher than physical activity inactivity uh sleep duration uh, less than five hours five hours or less or, or eight hours or longer diff, uh shift work uh difficulty maintaining sleep um you know sleep quality issues like all those things are actually greater risks for diabetes than even physical inactivity. So basically if, what that means is if someone is uh, you know, getting five hours of sleep a night in order to get all the training in uh, and then having difficulty sleeping because most people are you know, pushing over training or they have some, some you know, they're under, under covering or whatever and they're not sleeping right, um, they actually have a higher risk of diabetes than if they had just like <laughs> not done extra, not, not, not done triathlon and, and just get good sleep. So um, and it's hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around, but that's, you know, what the data is showing. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because a lot of these, these diseases, um, feed off of each other. So, you know, you know, for a long time we were talking about and concerned about metabolic syndrome. And so, you know, when you get that clustering of, of diabetes or disordered blood sugar, uh, high blood pressure, cholesterol, um, and, and you have this idea of obesity kind of at the center of it, uh, but obesity also plays into uh, sleep sleep disruption. And so, you, you know, it, it's not necessarily a chicken or the egg, but I think the exacerbation of it, um, you, you know, certainly can be because it's like, okay, well, you don't get enough sleep, you're, you're, you know, your weight might be harder to control, your weight's harder to control, you gain more weight, you sleep worse, uh, you know, your diabetes risk goes up, your diabetes risk goes up, your obesity gets worse, your high blood pressure gets worse. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's trying to come back around and say, okay, well, what can we do um, 
And, and somewhat related to that, and I never realized this, is that when you're waking up in the morning in, in the first couple of hours, you're so disoriented um, mm. that, that yeah. your level of impairment is high. And so even if you're talking about an athlete who's trying to train, they're trying to uh, you know, use caffeine, uh, in your practice, what are like, – what would you recommend that somebody do? Because I, I know that I face this and, and I have to remind myself, um, you know, how to structure my training. But what would you uh, suggest to somebody who's like, well, yeah, but I got to get all my training in. I got to get all my training in. So what, what, what am I supposed to do? Meaning so, so the people that wake up super early to train? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's actually a bigger problem in college sports. Where you have 6 a.m. sessions a lot of times, and, yeah. and potentially with high school too, uh, too more so with swimmers, um, because their clocks are naturally a little bit more delayed than adults. So the older we get, the earlier our clocks kind of shift over time. Um, so if you have a, a 40 or 50 year old triathlete waking up at five in the morning, it's, it's a whole lot better than than a 20 year old. Um, so that's one thing. So, um, but uh, beyond that, I think if so, some people I see that that wake up early like that are really great about getting to sleep at like nine o'clock, but many aren't. And I think, um, being more mindful of your light exposure at night. And so, uh, essentially we, we have this 24 hour body clock and light in the morning, like light exposure to, to bright light and blue light in particular that moves our clock forward and exposure to light in the evening moves our clock later. And midday light doesn't really change our, the, as far as the, the time of our clock. And so knowing that, Okay, you're you're getting up at you know let's say five. Um, you gotta be really mindful of your light exposure at night because it's, if if you're watching TV until nine or ten o'clock at night, your body still thinks it's daytime, and then your nighttime hormones will come up because the the blue light finally goes down. Um, but then with, when it's time to wake up, you're essentially your body should still be sleeping. Uh, it'd be easier to kind of picture. And there was a couple of I, I took a couple of good pictures of slides like this, but. Um, you know, your, your melatonin might still be high when you're, when you're trying to wake up and that's, uh, leads to that grogginess, like you mentioned, and, and something called sleep inertia. Whereas if you're, you know, really good about your light exposure and now, you know, it's the longest day of the year right now, or we just passed. Um, but as we get into the winter, especially, um, and it gets dark at, let's say six o'clock or you know, even seven o'clock, your body, you, you need to let your body know that it's getting dark at that time of day by managing your lights at night. So maybe not watching TV at night or uh, usually the options I give are to watch TV on your computer with the screen filters on. So there's something called night shift or, or flux for a laptop. And so that takes the blue light out of your screen. And so if you're going to watch, let's say Netflix after dinner, it's much, 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 much better to watch it on your laptop. You can dim the brightness, but also more importantly, like I said, the color can change. And yeah, it's not as cool as watching it on the big TV, but it's way, way better for your body. If you insist, or if someone insists on watching TV on their TV at night, um, wearing glasses that block the blue light at night are critical, um, because then again, at least your body knows that it's nighttime and, and lets your nighttime hormones start coming up. So if your melatonin starts coming up at 7 p.m., you're going to be ready to wake up much more likely at you know 5 a.m. compared to you turn the TV off at 9:30 and then melatonin starts coming up because it's been suppressed all that time. Um, it's going to be a heck of a lot harder to wake up in the morning. Yeah, I know. Uh, j j just from being a parent, um, the longer the longer daylight uh, is, or the longer the day is, it is so much harder to get our yeah. daughter to bed. 
Um, and then in the winter, it's, it's a lot easier to get started, but man, it's just like, it is a struggle because the days are so long. Um, I know that, that in the summertime, that, that seems to be the, what well, is the prime time for a triathlon, but it's just like everything gets pushed to the morning. And I think that a lot of times we're unwilling to adapt our lifestyle. And I mm-hmm. think that that's re- really what we're trying to get people to do is say like, okay, you want to do all this training, but we, we've got to, we've got to adapt it. Or at least what I, you know, what I try to do with myself and what I recommend to people is like, it, it can't be every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it can't, you, you, you can't have the super early swim session and the super early bike and the super early run, you, you know, if you're not going to um, try to make that up and, and, and naps are great, but naps don't replace sleep. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. you've you've really got to get that 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 eight hours, um, and I I can see it. You know, I I started tracking my sleep with my Garmin, and and um, I I definitely notice that uh, there's a certain pattern where I feel better, and there's a certain pattern where I feel worse, and certainly the 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 times of the night where my sleep cycle, particularly that REM sleep cycle, um, is less than four times. You know, it's like if I'm coming up like less than four and again, the a- accuracy of, of the watches is kind of, you know, questionable, but I definitely noticed that of like, a, if I'm in REM four or five times, if it says I was in REM four or five times, I definitely had better quality sleep. Um, so I think from that aspect, um, it works pretty good, but it, it, it gives you mindfulness of your sleep. And, and I think that what a lot of people would get is if they saw how little they slept, uh, mm. you know, might get them to, to kind of change things around. And plus training quality, you know, I yeah. mean, if, if you're tired all the time and your training is at 80%, um, you know, over time you're, you're, you're only going to achieve maybe 80% of your, your potential. Yeah. Now what's also worth, I think mentioning is, is then nighttime exercise. Um, I'm also not really a fan of, I mean, if it's too late, because for me, if it, after dark, and I know that's not always practical, but the, the later it is, the worse it is. Our, our body temperature wants to, should be cooling down at night. And what do we do during exercise? I mean, that's, we literally crank up our body temperature. So, um, that also is a signal besides the so light is, is one of the, the main drivers of our body clock and our food timing. So, uh, when we eat breakfast and when we eat our meals, that also drives our body clock and, and more, more so in our peripheral organs. And But body temperature, there's also a, a daily cycle to that. And that's a, another reason why actually early morning exercise can lead to more injuries because our body temperature starts is, is colder and it kind of peaks towards the middle of the, or late middle of the day or middle after, afternoon. Uh, and then it comes down in the evening. And again, um, that's, there's a lot of biological reasons for that. But if we exercise, and I've heard of some people doing 10, 11 o'clock at night, uh, trainer workouts, um, that is cranking up our body temperature. And, and then we're also typically, if, unless we're do, running outside, uh, we're in exposed to artificial light. So that cranks up our, uh, you know, our, our, our screws up our melatonin. And so, yeah, you might be able to fall asleep because you're just exhausted, but, uh, it's definitely not, you know, ideal from a, from a health standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, going back to, to one other thing that you had mentioned, um, you know, particularly for, for collegiate, uh, swimmers and, and collegiate just in general, um, is that they, their, you know, their training schedules are so messed up, but their sleep schedules are pretty messed up too. I mean, I, yeah. I, 
I know plenty of students who go to bed at three in the morning and then they have to get up for practice at six, which means they're getting up at five thirty. Um, yeah. They're probably not eating. And so you're getting this combination of factors where, you know, they're underfueled, underslept, underrecovered, um, and, and you end up with, with not just the increase in, in, in uh, the risk of injury, but just a, a stagnation in performance. Yep. Yeah, I believe it. All right. So uh, what are some of the other things um, that, that, that you saw that um, – you you know kind of made you think uh made you maybe yeah i, I tell you um i think there was a session on on heat essentially or heat uh, and and sweat and things like that well there was well sorry two of them one, one on sweat and one more on, on the heat stuff what i found super interesting um was that there's been over 30 deaths in ncaa football conditioning sessions since 2000 but one of the, the leading researchers uh dr doug casa was giving one one of the presentations and talked about um, you know they, they essentially created um, re- regulation or you know guidelines and that the NCAA finally uh, adopted so things like if, if there's a certain temperature and a certain humidity you know there's got to be a certain number of water breaks and things that you know sometimes when you're a coach or athlete you say oh this is kind of lame if you feel like you know it's not really that hot or whatever but um, they've been extremely successful in, in reducing these these deaths and injuries so I just think it's I was really just impressed by the fact that. Uh, you know, though it was probably far too late to, to, to happen, it, you know, it's, it's, these changes have happened and, and it's been a lot of good that's come of it. So, um, yeah, I found that really interesting. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I recall the, um, the session on, on thirst and, and I know that, that, that we had talked a little bit about this. Um, but I went into the session on, on thirst and kind of what we learned, with the hopes of kind of being able to learn something more, and I came away disappointed mm. um, because I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if it really told me anything more. Uh, I know that there still is controversy over this idea of, well, you know, let, let your uh, thirst be the guide, and it's kind of interesting because I was listening to another podcast, and Alan Lim was on, and he was talking about. Um, you know, how to use thirst as a guide and how to, you know, really dial in your, your hydration based on doing your individual testing, which, mm. which I, I, I think is good advice because if you really want to figure out how much you should drink during activity, you should do your kind of your one-on-one testing with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, I'm still perplexed at, at this idea that if, if we don't use thirst as a guide, uh, what other marker can we use in competition? And I always come back to, yeah, you know, if you go by thirst and you come up short, you you underperform. If you don't go by thirst and you overdrink, you die. I mean, that, that's kind <laughs> yeah. of where we're at. I, I mean, that, that really is, and it, not everybody dies if you overdrink, yeah. but – if if you look at the statistics, the number of people that have died dur- during competition due to dehydration, it, I, I'm, oh, I, I mean, you can't than, find yeah. it. Yeah, um, yeah, I know. It's, I agree. And it's it, it's so it's one of those things. It's like okay, you don't like thirst, but but what do we do? And so, I think that that um, I, I the you know the session I did come away. It did make me think about ways that we can monitor hydration. 
and I think that that again for endurance sports, particularly if we are coaches or we're athletes, and we're thinking about what we can do to optimize our performance, it it takes a little bit of time. It takes some time to figure out what your sweat rate is. Uh, I know they presented some 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 new ideas on how to calculate sweat rate, uh, you know, very precisely and in accounting for things. Um, but what what do you generally recommend to your clients that are coming in and, and yeah, yeah. I think um, my, my kind of current feeling and, and, and what I practice is uh, if it's if it's short, relatively shorter duration exercise. So let's say under a couple hours, and or moderate, cool to moderate temperatures. I do think thirst is you know pretty fine. Um, when we're talking about seventy point three and certainly Ironman distance, we certainly don't want to maintain body weight, but we want to lose a little bit, but not too much. So. What that then looks like is I'll have um, I'll give someone a, a essentially a blank spreadsheet with with the kind of the calculations already uh, filled in. So all they have to do is put in their starting body weight, their ending body weight, how much um, fluid they drank in ounces, and and how long their session was. And so we'll get a sense over multiple sessions. All they have to do is weigh themselves before and after, and we'll start to see you know one percent, three percent, two percent, whatever it is, and we kind of can can zero in on the fact that okay, we want want you to be a little bit under. Too far under is bad, meaning under your starting weight, um, but but you know not necessarily you don't you don't feel like you need to come back at your starting weight. I think um, in in the heat or the extended exercise, and when it's extremely hot or and or humid, that's when I think it becomes more critical, where where we see more of the performance impairments. So even if it's um, let's say a half marathon or, or a marathon or something, um, I think if it's you, you might want to if it's going to be very humid, you might want to be a little bit more aggressive with the strategy. Um, I, I did one thing I kind of found interesting, though I haven't been able to use it very much, is there is a, a formula to, to estimate your liters per hour of sweat in moderate temperatures. And, and so for those that, that are curious, um, if you take your kilograms of body mass and you multiply by the kilometers per hour that you're running, so let's just say your average speed um, in kilometers per hour, and then divide it by 732, that works out to a pretty a good estimation of your liters per hour of sweat rate. Um, most people will not need to do this or want to do that calculation. But for me, I thought it was pretty interesting. And then again, you kind of balance that with, okay, what are we uh, coming back with? I think runners, obviously it's, it's more of a pain to carry water. Um, and, and it's not as nice to be running around with a bunch of water, you know, swishing around your stomach. Um, so runners definitely seem to get have much bigger problems, and when you can get someone drinking even cl- like half of their fluid losses, they tend to feel a whole lot better. Whereas cyclists, you know, it doesn't seem to be as as big of an issue. I think you also have the obviously you're riding faster, so you have the wind cooling um, that that really can help things. So um, it's kind of a, a long-winded answer, but I guess it's it, it's um, getting a sense, measuring their, their body weight pre and post to get a sense: are we kind of in the right range? And if, if we're in the, basically in the right range, then, you know, kind of whatever the person's doing is working. And if they're coming up out of range, meaning gaining weight or, or losing too much weight, then um, kind of be a little bit more um, prescriptive. Yeah, and uh, here's one, one thing that I've learned uh, from, from my own kind of practice of, of uh, trying to dial this in is that it's, it's really helpful for you – uh, to weigh yourself pre and post run under different intensities in different mm. running conditions, and so it, it, it can be uh, common to you know maybe do it on a treadmill 
um, or to do it only at certain times a year. But I've kept a, you know, a record at least in the past where it's, uh, you know, I got the temperature and I got, got the, the conditions, my weight loss, and, and I can see a pretty profound difference. And I, I think I mentioned this to you before. Uh, I see my highest sweat rates running. Uh, when I actually come off the bike. So that oh, brick run, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I, I have easily hit uh, sweat rates over two liters per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's very hard for me. I get, I, I get close to that. It's a very hot day and a hard run, but it's hard to get there. And, and I guess from my perspective, I, 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 I would surmise that my body temperature is already elevated um, and oh, yeah. I'm, I'm able to go into that run at least pretty fast. And, you know, it's usually that, oh, that time. That, that's it. I think the, the other thing, yeah, that worth mentioning is if, so if you, if you go out essentially cold and run for 45 minutes or an hour, you know, that, that first some amount of time, depending on the, the, the running speed and the outdoor temperature is going to be your body ramping up from its resting temperature to, to kind of this like elevated critical temperature yeah. on the bike. You're essentially starting there. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's a huge, huge difference. Of course, it's hard to weigh yourself, you know, in the middle of a brick. Some people can do it, you know, if you, if you do a brick, uh, based out of your house, but, um, it's, yeah, it's, that, that's absolutely. So, so it's easy to, to like get thrown off by having one sweat rate on one day and then a different one another day. And, and again, indoors, maybe you have a fan or maybe there's air conditioned, it's air conditioned gym, or maybe, um, maybe you don't. And so, you know, all, all these variables can affect it. So I think doing it a number of times, like you said, uh, I think is, is a really great strategy. Yeah. And, and, and so what, what I do, um, cause you mentioned doing this out of your, you know, your home is on those days, I, I have everything planned out and I have, uh, you know, I have the scale available. Um, now, now it's, it's a little bit more difficult because you've got to remember that if you've been out on a bike ride, um, your clothes are going to be sweaty. So you've got to kind of get out of the clothes um, because, you know, a sweaty jersey can can be pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you're probably still sweating a lot of it. If you do a fairly quick transition, once you stop riding, you probably, you know, it keeps going. So there's there's that too. Yeah. Yeah, so so what, what I typically do is, you know, I I go out, I'll, I'll weigh myself before the bike. Um, I, I account for fluid losses. Uh, you know, I try to avoid any bathroom breaks. Um, but I come back and I'll weigh myself. If I have to go to the bathroom, then I go to the bathroom. Um, and then I, I can weigh myself again pre run, but it's all got to be planned out because you, you've really got to get out the door probably within about five minutes. You don't want your body temperature to come down too much. You, you really want to get a sense of, of what it's going to be like. And also, uh, you, you know, I think it goes with the training idea of the brick. Um, when it's a hot day and you're doing a triathlon, you're going to feel awful on a run, especially starting out. Yeah. And you need to know how to prepare for that. Um, and I think that for, for newer triathletes, it can be a shock. It can be a, oh, oh my God, you know, I feel like I'm going to die. And <laughs> yeah, for me, I've, I've done it enough times that I know I feel like I'm going to die, but I, I'm confident <laughs> I won't. And so I know my limit <laughs> and that's the only way that you can kind of run right at that limit is that if you've, you've actually been there and it, it, it does take a little bit of time, but once you've done it a bunch of times, it's, it's pretty easy to manage. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, 
We did the conference, but but uh, you you've actually uh, been doing some work with some ultra endurance uh, uh, cyclists. Uh, so, what have you been up to specific to the race across America? Yeah, I worked with uh, mainly with one guy, but, but essentially that got related to his partner. But a, a two man team that not only won the race across America uh, this past week, but but set a course record, which I guess is a, is a world record for that. Pretty staggering, um, you know. I, I, that that just leaves me speechless when I think about when when they started. It, it, in their case, it was six and a half days. I think of I remember when they started, and then essentially they're riding, they're alternating roughly hour on hour off, and then maybe a three hour block, and then it really changed through the week. Um, but give or take, I just think of everything I did from a Saturday afternoon until the following Friday night. Um, I can't imagine doing nothing but cycling and eating and resting. Um, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just mind boggling. And um, I haven't gotten the full debrief. I was kind of, I didn't, I didn't go along on the week, but I was in touch with uh, one of the, the guys in the crew who was kind of managing the food as best he could. Um, we had uh, essentially hourly goals of intake for the times when he's resting and the times when he's cycling. And, um, you know, I, I actually, I think, um, I think he ended up gaining, uh, a couple pounds over the course of the week. So I think that's okay. Uh, probably was water though, to be honest, it, it might've been some kind of, uh, just kind of essentially swelling in the body. Yeah. I'm not sure when that, that end hydration was measured. Um, but, um, you know, he was able to, to staggeringly hold around 200 Watts, even, even like for these hour sessions or hour segments, uh, like late, late into the, you know, six days into the riding. Um, so yeah, really interesting experience. You know, um, it would be different if it was a solo person versus a two-man team. Uh, but in their case, they were able to really go hard almost every segment. And they were trying. Initially, they, they had a lot of headwinds in places where there had historically been tailwinds. And so they were about an hour behind the record on the first day. So they had to really eat away, creep up to that. And they ended up beating it by like six one-hundredths of a mile per hour. Uh, that's how that goes, I guess. It, it gets the average time versus the average duration. So it's a average speed is what what constitutes as the course record. And uh, they they edged it out by yeah point zero six one hundredths of a mile per hour on average. So really every second counted. Um, and we really just had at least going in the the strategy was to have here are the options that are great on the bike in order to get you um, you know enough carbs and things and to keep the, the calories coming. And then here are the foods that are better to be had um, at, at rest. Um, and so actually I'm still waiting to, to chat, to get the full debrief, but, um, obviously it went pretty darn well. So I take it they weren't keto. <laughs> no, no, probably consuming around 1500 grams of carbs per day, uh, ballpark. Wow. At least, at least if not a little bit more. Yeah. That's wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah, you, you know, the, those guys are so, um, so unique, and I, I I remember us talking beforehand, and you know, kind of looking at some of the, the 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 test data. And so we talk about you know critical power or lactate threshold or any of those types of concepts. And these guys, it's like you know, going from say their power output at one hour to going out to five hours, there's not a huge drop off. Right. Exactly. Yeah. His, his lactate threshold is, is very high as a percentage where, you know, someone who's completely untrained, their lactate threshold is extremely low relative to their max. But when you look at these ultra athletes, um, 
and even elite marathoners for that matter, you know, they're, they're able to hold a very high percentage of their max, which is really the idea for endurance training. Yeah. Wow. Oh, so, um, you, uh, you're, 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 you're still in, uh, Los Angeles, right? Yes. Um, but you, you've got some big, big changes coming up. Yeah. 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 I'm going to be doing a PhD, um, in, in sports science in, in uh, New Zealand coming up. So that uh, exact timing to be determined, but, but, um, uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about as that research unfolds, but looking large, you know, generally at, at pre-exercise nutrition. And so all the, a lot of things we've talked about on previous, um, interviews, um, you know, I'll be studying that some of the unanswered questions, um, and you know, speaking of speaking of kind of research, there's two other I guess things that I found really noteworthy about the ACSM conference. I think is worth worth mentioning. One is there was a great um, I don't know if, if you were at this, but um, there was a, a pioneering sports science researcher named John Halazi. Halazi, um, and uh, just for those that don't know, I mean, just like the absolute godfather of of sport and uh, exercise research, um, and so. 40, what, 40 plus years of research and, and just, um, countless excellent graduate students coming through his lab. And so they did, a, 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 I forget how many, but a bunch of them did essentially a career retrospective over the yep. course of an hour and, and uh, just shared his kind of key research and the things that they were involved with and, and stories about him and just really what an amazing uh, guy and, uh, just an amazing body of work and, and influence on the field and all of his students. Um, just, just worth uh, mentioning one of the, his, his, uh, his, I guess, sayings or favorite quotes was uh, a Latin phrase uh, that essentially translates to step by step ferociously. So, you know, taking things incrementally in, 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 in step by step, as in, let's say in this case, a research of really moving things forward one step at a time, but, but doing it with, with a ferocious approach and attitude and, and, and just to really get, get a ton of stuff done. So really inspiring and, and enjoyable. Um, the other thing that I thought was amazing as far as the research goes um, there's some people might have heard of some studies called supernova. So we've, we've mentioned some of these where they're looking at race walkers uh, on either the ketogenic diet or the high carb diet or, or you know, variations. When they were testing, they would test these large groups of athletes and they, they had essentially a 10 hour testing day to do, you know, a variety of, of like lactate tests and VO2 tests. But they had this, the day planned out in five minute increments. So imagine a, a 10 hour day planned out to the to the five minute increment as people were doing like a kilometer on a treadmill and then five kilometers outdoors and, and back in and, and these multiple laps and just unbelievable, um, organization and, and, uh, skill in, in the research and, and the logistics are just like kind of mind boggling. Just, I, I, I can't even, I'd love to see what that calendar looks like when you have a 10 hour day planned out in five hour increments or five, excuse me, five minute increments. So, uh, kind of a, just an impressive feat by Louise Burke and, and her, her lab. Yeah, it, it's, um, <clears throat> That type of research is really hard to do well because um, their study numbers are are very robust. You, you know, one of the criticisms that I often uh, field is, uh, "Oh, well, that study's only got ten people, or that study's, you know, that that that, that only had fifteen people." Um, and you you have to remind people, it's like, well, uh, when we're talking human subjects, if we're not talking drug trials. Here, yeah. here, where you've got millions and millions of dollars. When you're talking to human subjects, um, it is very important that we put in the context the results. And so, when you get a one-off study, really for anything, um, it's interesting. If it happens twice, um, okay. 
it, it's when you get into the three, four, five, six times that it, it, it really starts to be conclusive. Well, when you're doing big studies like these where, where you've got uh, many, many subjects, you can a- answer those questions um, a little bit sooner and more definitively. Um, and they're hard to do, though. You have to have oh, yeah. good graduate students, good planning, good funding. Uh, there's got to be a willingness there for the, stu- the subjects to show up and do it. I, I really applaud them because it is hard enough for me to get a subject to do something for three or four weeks. Hell, even the the sprint training study or, or the sprint study, the supplement study I did this past winter, it, it, it was hard enough to get those guys to commit to three sprint sessions without totally screwing up the sprint sessions by going out and doing, uh, you know, training. Got you it, know? Yeah. And, uh-huh. and so it's hard. It's, it's hard to coordinate that. So I, I, you know, I really applaud them because I've done, um, not, not necessarily research on that scale, but you, you know, if you work with sports teams and you've got oh, yeah. a lot of testing done in a day, things got to go well. People have to show yeah. up on time. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that, that was, um, that that's definitely really really impressive, and it's something. When when those studies are successful, it's great that they put that out there because a lot of us need to say, okay, why well, I can't do something that big, but I really need to see how they did that, yeah. um, so that I can plan out this study a little bit better. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. And then I on, on your point, uh, you know, on on uh, John Halazi. Uh, I, I was not able to make that session because that was the Friday session, uh, uh, and I was disappointed. But um, I can say that being an undergrad and then coming up through graduate school, uh, his his name, I mean, it, it was it was on so many papers, ignoring just the graduate students that that worked in his lab and came through his lab. Uh, I, I mean, as early as I, I think the mid '60s. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. There, there were a couple of papers like '67, '69, um, and then into the '70s. He did a lot of that, that, that work, uh, you know, with, with with mice and rats, where he's looking at uh, the the adaptations to endurance training at the mitochondrial level, um, and really one of the first people to say. Oh, there, there's a clear intensity relationship here. If these mice run at, you know, X intensity, they seem to produce more mitochondria. Uh, so, I mean, it's those types of studies. And, and, you know, again, people will scoff. Oh, yeah, but they're mice. Yeah, but we, we've done the human studies now. Like, like we yeah. have all this information because of those studies and they've all borne out. I mean, we were able to learn so much about the adaptations to exercise and, and, and how profound they are, how, how just systems profound those changes are, but also some key points as to how you manipulate volume and intensity, which are such a key part of exercise prescription. Um, Halazi did a lot of that early work, and it's just, it's yeah. you know if for his career to span that much and have such an influence on so many people is is uh, um, it, it's something to strive for certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, him and yeah, it's, he, he gets so much credit, but I don't think he can get enough credit. Yeah. 
Well, cool, Jeff. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to chat with us. Um, and we will certainly be in touch again. And, and uh, we, uh, you'll have to keep me up to date on, on how your, your PhD is shaping up. Um, Absolutely. That's interesting. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate the chat as always. Well, that wraps up another One More Mile podcast. If you enjoyed the discussion on today's show or you have questions about some of the things we talked about or if you were actually at the meeting and uh, we didn't get to catch up, please drop me an email at goonemoremile at gmail.com. That's goonemoremile at gmail.com. You can also learn more about the podcast at www dot go one mm.com that's go one mm.com you can check out uh hopefully some articles that it will be popping up shortly uh coming in august and you can certainly hit the donate button donate to the podcast support us we definitely need that and you can also write us a review on itunes for as long as itunes is up because itunes is going away It'll be interesting to see what they come up with you listen to us on stitcher you can review us there as well but all of those things help us grow our audience and bring in sponsors as always folks in training in life always go one more mile later